the book of Jude, the book of Jude, right before the book of Revelation. And if you can, I'd appreciate it if you'd stand as we honor the reading of the Word of God tonight. Man, that was a blessing. I appreciate so much, Brother Gurley, uh, the transparency, the uh, sincerity. That's just refreshing in this crazy world. All of you missionaries have been a blessing, and I appreciate you. And um, I hope you'll let me know if I can be of help to you. Well, I tell you, my heart's been stirred tonight, and it's just been a blessing. Thank you for letting me come back. I appreciate your pastor more than I can express. appreciate your kindness and all that you've done this week to make all of us very comfortable and enjoy our stay here. I want to read Jude, verses 17 through 23. Jude, 17 through 23. <clears throat> but, beloved... Remember ye the words which were spoken before of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, how that they told you there should be mockers in the last time who should walk after their own ungodly lusts. These be they who separate themselves, sensual, having not the Spirit, but ye, beloved, building up yourselves on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Ghost, Keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life, and of some have compassion, making a difference, and others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment spotted by the flesh. Dear Father, thank you for what we've enjoyed tonight. Thank you for this week. God, thank you for being so merciful. Thank you, God, for uh, putting our sin under the blood of the Lord Jesus. Thank you for the privilege of serving you and being a part of this great work. I pray, Father, tonight that you would allow me to be your vessel and that the Holy Ghost would do through me what I cannot do. And please help this church simply to be faithful to what you'd have them to do. And we'll thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Be seated. I can still remember something that happened over 45 years ago. As a matter of fact, I, re- I remember it very vividly, and there's a lot of things I don't remember that happened 45 years ago. But over 45 years ago, my brother threw gasoline on a fire. Now, I'm going to leave the rest to your imagination, <laughs> but I can tell you this, singed facial hair is not a pleasant experience. Use diesel, use kerosene, but don't use gasoline on a fire. We're told if you play with fire, what's going to happen? You're going to get burned. You play with fire, you're going to get burned. Now, um, I want us to get to verse 23 here in just a little while, uh, where Jude says that the way to save some, and I want you to look at, I want you to think about how graphic this phrase is. The way you save some is pulling them out of the fire. That's a graphic phrase. Can you picture what that means? Stop and think about that picture, that that terminology that Jude chooses to use. We'll get to it in just a little while, but I want to lay the groundwork first of all and say some things that maybe uh, need to be said before we get to the meat of the message. I want you to notice the first word in our text in verse 17 is the word but. It is a continuation of a thought that he's been talking about all throughout this this book. There's only one chapter in the book. And in Jude, he reminds us of some things that we need to be reminded of, perhaps as they did in his day. In verse 5, I want you to notice what he said. He said, I will therefore put you in remembrance 
I just preached last Sunday on selective memory. It wasn't from this text. It was from 2 Peter chapter 1 where three times Peter said, I'm going to remind you of some things that uh, you need to be reminded of even though you already know them. Don't get mad at your preacher if he repeats himself. You know why? Because we're thick-skulled. Amen. We have to be told over and over and over again. So we need to be put in remembrance. And here in verse 5 he says, I will therefore put you in remembrance though you once knew this. Watch this. How that the Lord having saved the people out of the land of Egypt. What people is he talking about? Israel, the Jews, saved some people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed them that believed not. Some of the children of Israel were destroyed. Why? Because they believed not. I'm reminded of the book of Romans where Paul in those first eight chapters is speaking to the saints and then he uses a parenthetical lesson to teach them something. Chapter 9, chapter 10, chapter 11 is all about Israel and he talks about how God put Israel on the shelf and then when you come to chapter 12 verse 1 he says, I will therefore, I beseech you therefore brethren by the mercies of God that ye present you. Why does he say I beg you to present your bodies a living sacrifice so you won't be put on the shelf? You know what God did to Israel? He destroyed some of His people. The apple of His eye. And yet He destroyed them because they believed not. Then in verse 6, look what Jude tells us. And the angels which kept not their first estate but left their own habitation. He hath reserved in everlasting chains under darkness under the judgment of the great day. So some angels are reserved in darkness. And then in verse 7, even as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities about them in like manner giving themselves over to fornication and going after strange flesh are set forth for an example. Look at this. Suffering the vengeance of what? Eternal fire. So some of God's people were destroyed, some in darkness and some in damnation. That's pretty harsh. He's talking about what God did. Then when you come to chapter this book and come to verses 8 through 16, Jude said, even after that we'll have mockers and murmurers. He said, even still, with God doing that, we have some mockers. And in verse 17 and 18, we get to our text where he says, but... In other words, look at what he says. Beloved, remember you the words which were spoken before of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, the apostles told you it was going to be this way. You shouldn't be surprised. They told you that it would happen like this. And then in verse 20, he says, lifting or or building up yourselves in your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Ghost, keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. So let me, let me put that in a capsule. Jude tells them that God used destruction and darkness and damnation on His own people. And some people that He rescued out of Egypt. Didn't He rescue you out of Egypt? Didn't He rescue you from your sin? Didn't He rescue you from hell? And, and Jude tells them God, re- God destroyed some of His own people. Some were the angels. The angels even were placed in darkness. And then some people suffered vengeance of eternal fire. And Jude said, but we still have mockers. And the apostles said it would be that so. But listen to what he said. But you can still do right. Do you see what he said in verse 14 about Enoch? Enoch also the seventh from Adam prophesied of these saying, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousands of his saints. Enoch in a godless society walked with God. You know, I keep hearing everybody talking about how bad things are getting and all that stuff, and I understand that. But can I tell you something? Paul the Apostle served God in Corinth and Ephesus in a godless society that worshipped the goddess Diana like the idols of Sri Lanka? If, you, if, if Paul could build a thriving church in Ephesus? If, God could build a th- if Paul could build a thriving church in, in Corinth? 
Why, why do we act like because it's getting bad that God's all of a sudden paralyzed? It, it almost seems like the worse it gets, the more God can show His power. I believe I read where Paul the Apostle said that His strength is made perfect in weakness. And we are realizing our weakness. Maybe as we realize how weak we are, God can begin to do something with us when we get off our high horse and think we're special. Amen. So Jude is reminding them that even in a wicked, vile culture, you can still do right. In 2016, I prayed and prayed and begged my church to pray before the election that God would give us a reprieve. Can I tell you something? He gave us one. And my question is, what have we done with it? That four-year reprieve is almost over. I don't know what's coming next, but my question is, we begged God for mercy. We didn't want to see this thing go the other direction. And God showed mercy and gave us a reprieve, but did we really do any better the last four years than we did the four years before that? I'd like to try to stoke a fire in you, to light a fire in you tonight, to pull others out of the fire. Fire can refer to a lot of things in the Bible. I don't know if you've ever studied it or not, but 1 Corinthians 7, 9 says, it is better to marry than to burn. (laughs) Well, that's burning with lust. That's burning with passion. Uh, In Proverbs 6, the Bible says, can a man take fire in his bosom and his clothes not be burned? Verse 28, can one go upon hot coals and his feet not be burned? What's the context of that? The Proverbs chapter 6 verse, or, or chapter 6 verse 24 to 26 says it's about males and females. And, and a man is burning in his heart and he's burning with lust. And so right before that it says pay attention to the Word of God and pay attention to the instruction of the men of God. Why? Because there's going to be a fire and, and those men can help pull you out of that fire. Let, let me put it this way. By the Bible and preaching can keep you from getting burned. That's pretty simple, isn't it? I'm commanded in 2 Timothy 4 to reprove and to rebuke and to exhort with all long suffering. Now, I, I know a little bit about what your pastor preaches and teaches because we have him quite often at our church. But since I am not here all the time, let me tell you why I preach what I preach at Cornerstone on such topics as immodesty. I preach against it. You know why I preach against immodesty? You know why I preach against boys and girls getting too close physically before they're married? You know why I preach against touching? You know why I preach against sensual music? You know why I preach against PG movies that show a lot of sensual things going on? I preach against it because I'm trying to pull some young people out of the fire. They're going to get burned. And it's our job to pull them from the fire. I love building a fire. From now until around March, there's no telling how many little fires I'll build. And I'll go out and cut wood. And when I go out to cut wood, first thing I do is I build a fire. And I'll build, I'll chop that wood up with an axe. Sometimes I'll use my, my, I, I, I do it the easy way sometimes. But I love chopping wood. And, uh, and so sometimes I'll just, I'll just be out there for two or three hours and I'll have a fire and I'll go sit by the fire. It's very peaceful. And sometimes I'll build a fire and let it die out on its own. And go back 24 hours later and start it back without a match. Just by going. Girls, listen to me. 
it doesn't take much to start a fire. I I preach this everywhere I go. I'm telling you, girls, you better be careful. You're going to start a fire you won't be able to put out. Doesn't take much to start a fire. I grew up with a wood stove in the house because you'd freeze to death if you didn't have... And everybody just pretty much hovered around that wood stove. I mean, in our in our house, I mean, it, you know, back in those days... And by the way, we were healthier. I won't get off on that. Uh, but, but uh, you know, in the, in the summertime, you just, in our South Alabama, you just raised the windows and, uh, and, and you didn't have a screen. And in the winter, you'd freeze to death. And we'd get around that wood stove, and every now and then it'd get too hot, and, and we'd reach up there, and there was a little knob on that stove pipe. Y'all know what that was called? It's called a damper. So you could turn the heat down. Y'all know what a, what a damper is? That's an independent King James fundamental Bible-believing Baptist preacher. I tell people in my church, especially the young people, I'm your damper. Because you say I put a damper on everything. That's because I'm trying to pull some people away from the fire. My grandsons want to come over and help me with the wood and help me work outside. But they want to go over and hang around that fire. And I'm a nervous wreck. Because fire is dangerous. It's my job to help pull some people out of the fire. And young people don't realize how dangerous fire can be. Then there's another kind of fire. Ephesians 6 says, Above all, taking the shield of faith wherewith you shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. That's talking about temptations like darts. That boy, A guy that knows what to do with a dart, they can put that dart in your neck before you even know it's coming. It's not like a gun where you hear a sound. It's not, it's not like a lot of things. Those fiery darts can, can come in before you ever know they've come in. They're in before you know it. Those fiery darts are sort of like your thought life and your imaginations. And so why do I preach and warn young people and adults about fleshly music and worldly movies and surfing the internet and social media? Because you're playing with fire, that's why. And, and let me tell you something, as quick as you can click a mouse, you can be on fire. So I'm trying to pull you away from the fire. Turn, turn in your Bible to just for just a moment here to James chapter 3. Let me preach on this one for just a minute. I sort of preach these three or four points just to get warmed up. No pun intended. <laughs> James chapter 3. James chapter 3. Look at verse 5. Even so the tongue is a little member. Brother Beerman talked about this the other night. And boasteth great things. Look at this. Behold how great a matter a little fire kindleth. And the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. Oh, could I preach tonight for a little while? Why do I preach against gossip? Why do I preach against lying? Why do I preach against rumors? Why do I preach against character assassination? Why do I preach against Facebook? Why do I preach against all the texting that's going on and all the bitterness and backbiting and whispering that's going on in our church? Because I'm trying to pull you away from the fire before the whole church burns up. Just one little tongue can do so much damage. Just a little fire. We've got to preach on these things, folks, because we're trying to keep you out of the fire.
Fire is dangerous. So there's the fire of touching. There's the fire of temptation. There's the fire of the tongue. Proverbs 16, 27 says, An ungodly man diggeth up evil, and in his lips there is a burning fire. And so I could preach on those. That's not the message tonight. The fire of touching, the fire of the temptations, the fire of the tongue. I want to preach tonight on the fire of torment. Or at least talk about it. In Jude 22 in our text, he says compassion works for some people. You can help some people with compassion, just loving and caring about them. But he said others need to be brought to fear. They need to, they need to be scared to death. And, isn't that the impression given? They need to be afraid. Some you've got to save, the Bible says in verse 23, with fear. Didn't Paul say, I, by all means... Paul said, I've got to try everything possible to, to reach them, to win them. So I, I by all means, and sometimes it's by compassion and sometimes it's by fear. Now Jesus, Jesus taught that he would make us fishers of men. So we're likened to fishermen. But I believe Jude would liken us to firemen. Pulling them out of the fire. Think about that phrase tonight for a little while, East River. I want you to think about this for a moment. I tried to today. I tried to meditate on it. I tried to think about what, what this should say to me, what this should speak to me about. I, I don't like to use hell to get people emotional right before they give their faith promise. That's not my goal. I don't preach on hell to try to use scare tactics to get people to do something. I think that's, I think that's dangerous, to be honest with you. I, I'll be honest with you missionaries. and I, Listen, you let the Lord lead you, but I don't like these third world countries where they go in and show them movies of the burning hell and all that and then give them an invitation and talk about 500 people getting saved. That bothers me. But I'll tell you something that bothers me almost as much is the fact that some of us never get stirred up. When, when my church members, a handful of them, not many, because they know I've not been to the theater in over 30 years and I've just made it my mind, I'm, I'm not going. That's just my personal choice, okay? But some of them want me to go see The Passion of Christ. And I said, no, I'm not going to go see it. Because all I'll do is like all these old churches I used to go into and had all these pictures of Jesus. When everybody thinks about Jesus, all they can think about is those pictures they've seen. And that's not what Jesus was like at all. And I, I don't, I don't want to see a Catholic version of the crucifixion that stirs me up for 15 or 20 minutes. I want the Word of God to motivate me because the Word of God will be here tomorrow and the next day and the next day and the next day. And if I have to be stirred up in my emotions with some kind of film or video, then it won't last. But as much as I hate people who use emotionalism in the wrong way, it grieves me that sometimes some of us are past feeling altogether and never get stirred up. And I'll just tell you, East River, you included every church I go to needs to get stirred up about hell. Somehow we've gotten to the place that we're past feeling. We don't weep like we used to over hell. We don't weep over lost souls like we used to. I think there's a problem in our churches and, and I think here we're likened to firemen pull, literally pulling people. Can you imagine a burning car? What a job to try to go over there and rescue somebody out of that car. That seems to be the metaphor that is given to us here in the book of Jude to save some, pulling them out of the fire. Mark nine forty three says, It's a fire that shall never be quenched. 
Matthew 13, 42 says it's a furnace of fire. Matthew 18, 8 says it's an everlasting fire. Revelation 20 calls it a lake of fire. The rich man in hell in Luke 16 said, I am tormented in this flame. Must be a real place. There would be no reason to believe in heaven if you say you don't believe in hell. Hell is a prepared place for the unprepared. It's a place of extreme anger. The Bible says in hell they're wailing and gnashing on their teeth. I had a brother that gnashed his teeth at 2 o'clock in the morning. Can you imagine hearing that for eternity? It's a place of extreme anger. It's a place of endless dying. My mother, before she died with cancer at the age of 49, would lay in the bed at night and I could hear in the room across from my room, God, please let me die. Oh God, please let me die. We were relieved when she died. But in hell you never die. You just die for eternity. I used to preach. Born once, die twice. Born twice, you die once. I've been born twice. (laughs) But if you've only been born once, you're going to die here and then you're going to die for all of eternity. And you'll wish that you you could die. It's a place of extreme anger, endless dying, enormous pain. He said, I'm tormented in this flame. flame. And it's, it's a place of eternal separation. Once you go there, there is no getting out. There is no hope. Why do we not... I, I don't think we should live our lives with a constant awareness of a place called hell. I don't think God expects that. I don't think we should be running up to people in Walmart and grabbing them and screaming at them, you need to get saved before you go to hell. I just think we've gone way too far in the other direction. I don't want to use emotionalism. I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't want to get to the point to where I'm trying to force people to get saved. I don't want to be so aggressive that I leave the Holy Spirit out of it. But how many people have said, well, if the Holy Spirit ever leads me, and He never does. And yet we've been called to pull them out of the fire. This is not a message on hell, by the way. It's not even a message to the unsaved. It's a message to God's people to join the rescue team. That we're to pull them out of the fire. It's urgent. It's time sensitive. The clock is ticking. And the fire is burning. And what are we going to do about it? Jude here when he says... We're to save some with fear. That word literally means to rescue. We sing the song, Rescue the perishing, care for the dying. Snatch them in pity from sin and the grave. Weep o'er the erring one. Lift up the fallen. Tell them of Jesus, the mighty to save. Though they are sliding him, still he is waiting, waiting the penitent child to receive. Plead with him earnestly. Plead with him gently. He will forgive if they only believe. So that song that we sing, and I think we sung it one night this week, weep or the erring one. Plead earnestly. Is that what we're doing? See, mission starts right here. And it starts at your Thanksgiving gathering and your Christmas get-together. We're to pull them out of the fire according to the Bible. Your pastor has been to Australia. He knows several missionaries over there. We have two out of our church. I spent nine days there on my last trip. I think I was there ten days on the first one I went to. 
over 5.25 million people there and a handful of churches. I mean, just a handful. And so while I was there, I was, I was amazed at how many different nationalities, how many different races, how many different uh, geographic locations were represented right there in Sydney. And, and because we've sent two missionaries there uh, out of our church to Sydney, I preached in both churches. One was a family meeting and one was a missions conference. And at the end of the missions conference in the second church, uh, the pastor said, are there any, are there any testimonies and and a lady stood up and and she raised her hand and she was an Asian lady and she had tears rolling down her face. I couldn't understand her, not because of her language, but because of the tears and the sobbing. And she said, please, please go home and tell Cornerstone, thank you for sending us a pastor. Weeping. So thankful to have a Bible-believing pastor. But 5.4 million over there don't have one. I was with Brother Philip Gaddis. I don't know if your pastor went on the streets with him or not, but I was with Philip Gaddis when we went to what's called Blacktown over there. And, uh, it's just a big mall area. And, and, and we all were preaching and singing and, and, uh, a, a group of men came by to taunt us. And they got real close to us. Some girls and guys that were very vulgar and saying unbelievably nasty things. And, and, and I had just got through street preaching and another fellow preached. And then, then Brother Philip, the missionary out of our church who went there to pastor, he started to preach and that crowd got right in front of him and saying all those vulgar things as his pastor. <laughs> I'm thinking I'm fixing to knock your block off, buddy. I mean, I thought I'm going to spend the rest of my life in a prison in Australia. And I looked over at Brother Philip Gaddis and tears rolling down both sides of his face. And he never batted an eye, just kept on preaching. And one week later, he led one of those to Jesus Christ. I believe those tears spoke a lot more than my anger. I've seen him weep over those souls and break my heart. I want that kind of burden for the people in Smith County, Tennessee. They're all over the place, aren't they? Weep, or the erring one. Plead with him earnestly. And that lady stood up and thanked us for sending a preacher over there. I'm glad there's two or three or four missionaries over there for all of those millions of people, but listen to me. That's not a lot of people to pull everybody out of the fire. They need some help. Are you a part of the rescue team? When I was ten years old, uh, I was in the back of a 63 Chevrolet. And uh, we were stopped to turn, and we were waiting on traffic to clear so we could turn. My brother-in-law was driving. My sister was in the front seat. I was in the back. 1963 Chevrolet Impala. And all of a sudden, my brother-in-law said, Hold on! And he had looked in the rearview mirror, and a pickup truck hit us from the rear and never even hit his brakes. And totaled that car, and I came out without a scratch. Scared to death. <laughs> I was lost. At 12 years old, one of my brother-in-laws, that was another brother-in-law, this is another brother-in-law. My sister's made a few bad mistakes in their life. And uh, I'm going down a, a, what they call Short Mountain in Warren County, Tennessee, and we're in a Volkswagen going down a mountain with two inches of snow on the ground, and that thing flips. He loses control, and it's sitting upside down, rocking on a cliff. And he said, be still. He didn't scream. He just said, be still. And you could feel that thing rocking. And man, we got out of there 
and uh, crawled out and was up there for several hours before they got us off that mountain. I was lost. 1976, at 16 years of age, I had a Jeep that had no roll bar on it, had no doors on it, and I flipped that Jeep and broke my leg. One week after that, a man flipped his Jeep with a roll bar, doors and everything, and killed instantly. But I laid there on the side of that road with a broke leg, lost and on my way to hell. At 18 years of age, my mother died, and I was suicidal for three months. I wanted to die so bad. I was afraid to die. I was afraid to go to hell. I didn't even know if I believed in it or not, but I was afraid of it. And after three months of that, I got born again. I trusted Jesus Christ and got saved. You realize how many times I came so close to going to hell? How many of you feel like God just rescued you from hell? You ever stop and think about what He rescued you from? You're here tonight. Maybe there's somebody here tonight that's not born again. This might be the providence of God on your life to get you here tonight and He spared you through all that you've been through so that you can be saved and get on the rescue team and help others rescue others. But it's urgent. The clock is ticking and the fire is burning. I preached a message here years ago on why we ought to do more than we're doing because of hell, because of heaven, Did you know in heaven, I I just preached this about three or four weeks ago at my church. I preached on the judgment seat of Christ and I tried to show my church I'm tired of us acting like as long as we get to heaven, it's going to be okay. I'll tell you all this, y'all do what you want to with it, but I know enough Bible to know this. After we get out of here, there's going to be a great tribulation. Worse than anything this earth has ever seen. And then the Lord's going to come back and set up an earthly kingdom that lasts a thousand years. Right? And after that's what's called the great white throne judgment. And at the great white throne judgment, what are we doing? We're part of the judging process. And when it's all over, God wipes the tears from our eyes. Why are we weeping? They can sing all they want to that there'll be no tears in heaven. There will be too. The Bible talks about we ought to do certain things so that we wouldn't be ashamed at His coming. I don't believe you're going to get out of here in the rapture and everything be A-OK. You're not going to hell, thank God for it. But we're going to answer for how we spend our lives. And I'm convinced that one of the things that's going to come up is all the opportunities God gave us to pull somebody out of the fire. We didn't do it. We had an opportunity, but we didn't take it. Because of hell, because of heaven. I'll tell you another reason you ought to get on the rescue team, because of here. If you're bored with Christianity, it's because you're not doing anything. Get involved. Get proactive. Start getting more serious about the local church. It is God's rescue team. The local church is God's fire rescue team. We are the first responders, spiritually speaking. It's our job to rescue the perishing. Get on board. Get more aggressive about this thing. Get more serious about it. We've got to get out of this this status quo Christianity playing the game and just trying to get through life. Man, I used to play play tennis with a guy, and he's one of those guys that just knock it down your throat, and I was one of those guys that played defensive tennis, and I just... just... (laughs) 
And then every now and then he'd hit one and I'd be waiting for it. And it'd just be one that just landed just right. And I'd just hit it as hard as I could and it'd hit past him. And he'd go, whoa, where'd that come from? Because all of a sudden I got aggressive. Some of you, some Sunday morning, I'll just say, Amen! Amen. (laughs) Scare Brother Roger to death. (laughs) He'll always look at you and say, Where'd that come from? Now, I'm not just talking about at church, but it wouldn't hurt you to raise your hand every now and then. It wouldn't hurt you to say amen every now and then. It wouldn't hurt you to give a testimony every now and then. It wouldn't hurt you to go to the altar and pray every now and then. And it sure wouldn't hurt you to witness to your neighbor or to witness to somebody you work beside every now and then and get aggressive about rescuing the perishing and pulling somebody out of the fire. I just wonder. I started doing this years ago. I, 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 they probably dread me showing up at the family reunions, but... My family, you know, I'm the youngest of I'm the youngest of ten. That's a small family if you're a Bach. <laughs> How many siblings you got, brother? Fourteen. Fifteen. I love it. But you go to a family reunion like that, there's gonna be a few people there. Now, I go to a family reunion with aunts and uncles and nieces and nephews and cousins and all that. They're about seventy five show up. Most of them you don't like them. I'm serious. We used to dread them coming over to the house when we was little. And now we'll have family reunion where my oldest brother will always say, Oh, let's all gather around. We're going to pray before we eat. And then he'll say, Anybody got anything to say? <laughs> well, for years I'd try to just hold back because I know that I, there's, there's a couple of other preachers in that bunch. But finally a few years ago I just raised my hand. He said, Okay, go ahead. And I'd say, hey, I just want to tell y'all, 1978, I trusted Jesus Christ and got born again. And it's not the church you go to, and it's not the name on the church door, and it's not whether or not you're a Methodist or a Baptist. The question is, have you been born again? And if you're not saved, I'd be glad to tell you how you can get saved today. Thank y'all, let's eat. (laughs) And you say, that's awkward. It's not as awkward as letting them go to hell. It's awkward to walk up to a vehicle and try to pull somebody out of a fire. And I'm not even, listen, I'm not even suggesting you do that at your family reunion or your Thanksgiving meal. But do something. Go outside while they're all eating and put a track on their door. Do something. Amen. Our job is to pull them out of the fire. Listen to me. The clock is ticking and the fire is burning. If we're going to be firemen, what does it take? Well, it takes a command. Now, some firemen, they may not feel like they were commanded, but either their conscience or their desire or just the, the get, get, got to have a job means they're going to be a fireman. But for us, we've got a command from on high. We, we, the, the, the commander of the universe has told us to pull them out of the fire. We've got orders from heaven. Obviously, a fireman that wants to do a good job gets trained. That's here. That's here. Who have you trained lately? I didn't, that question is not posed to your pastor. I'm asking you, who have you trained? Who have you discipled? Who are you helping? Maybe, maybe you could just say, you know what? Uh, I'm going to just go out this week. You talk to Brother Roger. I don't believe he'd tell you no and say, you know what, we're just looking for a way to go out and knock on some doors, pass some, put some door hangers on. We're just looking for a way to do something. And I'd like to take one of the young men with me. Would that be okay? And maybe you could pick somebody and 
Go out and let them see you make an effort to pull some out of the fire and then they might get a passion for it. I believe that'd work. What if it doesn't work? What did you lose? A fireman needs orders from his commander and he needs to be trained. And that's the local church. I had a man in Florida call me, a man I greatly respect, and he's burdened. And he said, Brother Ron, I want you to help me come up with a plan to do something about this. He said, churches are dying, churches are closing their doors, and I'd already been preaching for years, 46, 47 churches every week close their doors. He said, but now when a church needs a pastor, they call a college. There's something wrong with that. What about the local church? Why aren't we seeing more young men called a pastor out of our churches? America needs pastors. Not just Sri Lanka. Not just New Guinea. Not just Germany. America needs good Bible-believing pastors that love people and care about people and want to pull some people out of the fire. The local church job is to develop rescue teams. Why? Because the clock is ticking and the fire is burning. And let me just throw this in there real quick. When you hinder the local church, hurt the local church, make light of the local church, you're hindering the rescue team. We need firemen. We need firemen who have got a command from on high. They need to be trained. It takes commitment. Commitment deeper than your emotions. Deeper than... Listen to me carefully. I, I was preaching that meeting and I was preaching that meeting in uh, Australia and I was preaching on the family and I was talking about Martha and Martha had a bad attitude. And this is a true story. That place was packed that day. I believe they was having a 10 or 15 year anniversary and I was preaching on the home. They had a lot of visitors and I was talking, I was, I was giving Mary a pretty, Martha a pretty hard time. Martha, you know, she corrected the Lord and, and she was bossy and she just was, you know, she was cumbered about and all that stuff. And I was giving her a pretty hard time and right in the middle of it, and I'm, I'm over here preaching and there's somebody over here. I'm, I'm preaching pretty loud like I'm prone to do. And just right in the middle of that, somebody said, well, maybe Martha was having a bad day. It was a lady that didn't appreciate my comments about Martha. And boy, the Lord helped me. I just stopped. It got real quiet. And I looked over at her and I said, Well, I guess then it's okay for her husband to come home and beat her up if he's having a bad day. Having a bad day doesn't give us an excuse to do wrong. Being tired doesn't give us an excuse to let people go to hell. I wonder what it's going to be like, honestly. When Paul said, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men what our alibis are going to look like on that judgment day. Of the people that were headed for a place called hell and we did so little about it. Can you imagine a fireman at the fire station and a call comes in that says, a building's on fire, three people are trapped inside, he's supposed to immediately respond to that call? It's loud, it's clear, there's no doubt about it. He heard exactly what they said, but he just sits there and finishes a movie he was watching. What would we think of that fireman? In January of 2017, an 85-year-old man was sitting in his lawn chair out in his yard. There was a curve that went around his house. 
He was just sitting there in his lawn chair. He was 85 years old. The car missed the curve and flipped over right there just a few feet from him and caught on fire. At 85 years of age, he pulled two people out of that car. And then he had a caregiver that was there supposed to be taking care of him and he told her, go call 911. And he pulled them out. While they, she went and called 911, he got them out of that vehicle. They interviewed him on television. I watched the interview. And they asked him if he felt like a hero. He said, no, I just feel like an old man trying to save somebody's life. We're not looking for heroes. We're not looking for super saints. You don't need a cape that says you're spiritual. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to pull somebody out of a flaming car. It takes a command. It takes commitment. I think it just takes character. You know, God told Israel over there in Amos, He said, you were a firebrand plucked out of the burning. A firebrand. That's what, that's what Samson used to light those tails on those foxes on fire. It's like a stick that's in the fire and it's caught on fire and God pulled them out and let the fire go out. How many of you feel like you were a firebrand that God plucked from the fire? And God rescued you and you could have gone to hell. To me, just a little character and a little common sense says we ought to try to pull people out of the fire just like God pulled us out. I talked to a paramedic in our church and was asking him questions. He said the most difficult thing he faced was to get on the scene of a, of a bad situation. The need is obvious. He knows what he's supposed to do, and people are within minutes of death, but he cannot move until he gets authority to move. We act like that's what we've got, but we've already been given the authority to go. We don't need another command. And I'm going to be honest with you. I've got to be careful here. I believe in being filled with the Holy Spirit, being led of the Holy Spirit. But I think a lot of times it's nothing more than a cop-out to do nothing. And sit still when God's told us to go. We don't have to wait for another command. It takes communication. I'm told that if a fireman is in certain buildings and he can't even see because of the smoke, he wants to know the name of the person he's trying to rescue so he can call their name. Have you ever just tried to learn to call somebody's name? It is amazing what it does. I was in New York preaching a meeting, and a waitress at a Denny's restaurant, I think, but it was a restaurant, the pastor took me to eat breakfast. She comes over, he sees her name tag, And she hands us a menu, and he called her by name and said, Brittany, whatever her name was, this is a preacher friend of mine come up here to preach for me, and we're about to pray. Just wonder, Brittany, if there's anything that you're burdened about at your house that maybe we could pray for. She said, well, thank you so much. I'll let you know. She goes. She comes back and takes our order. He called her Brittany a couple of times, and then she went back, and she came back and brought the order, and he called her Brittany, and she started crying. She said, I cannot believe you asked me that this morning. She said, my son. And she started telling us this story. And she said, I sure would appreciate it if you'd pray for me. And later on, he got a chance to talk to her after work hours. But he just took an interest, enough interest to be able to call her by name and remember it. Are you, do you do that? Do you make an effort to learn people's names so you can pray for them and call out their name? 
Are we, enough, are we even interested in people enough now to learn their name? Don't tell me you can't learn names. I know how hard it is. I try myself and I struggle with it. We've got so many babies in our church, I can't remember their names. And I'm going to tell you something. I called a young man yesterday that I've been witnessing to for a while and it just made his day. He thanked me profusely for just calling him. And I've been witnessing to him for a while and he's not real familiar with church and how churches operate and really ignorant about church life, but he just can't believe somebody's taking an interest in him. You'd be surprised what that'll do even in New Caney and Houston, Texas. I'll just tell you the truth. People like to hear their name. Those firemen sometimes have to get down on their knees because there's so much smoke. And they told me, they said they could see better on their knees. Did y'all hear what I just said? You can see better on your knees. The same paramedic told me this. He said, with all of the trials and problems in the job that I do, he said, there are so many days I feel like quitting. He said, but Brother Ron, one thank you letter keeps me going. I hope you write missionaries. I hope you handwrite a missionary and call them by name. Not even an email or a text. I'm talking about handwriting a missionary. You ought to hear missionaries talk about what it's like when kids get mail from, from America. I could go on and on. I'll give you one last thing. If you're going to be a good fireman, you've got to be able to be alert and vigilant and focused. You can't be distracted by lesser things. Can you imagine a fireman who wants to know the layout of a building when he goes in there because he wants to be he doesn't want to fall through a, a, way, a stairwell. He doesn't want to he doesn't want to get hurt unnecessarily. And so he wants to know the layout of that building and he's he's crawling through there and he can hear that that little boy, Joey crying, screaming, and he calls Joey's name. And by the time he calls his name, he looks over and he sees an Xbox. And the fireman, hmm. So he takes the Xbox out and then goes back in to get the little boy. You wouldn't think much of that, would you? You wouldn't be, you'd be shocked as to how we're going to see one of these days how we've been consumed with lesser things while we should be rescuing people from the fire. Clock is ticking and the fire is burning. Firefighter Timothy Stackpole, that's his name, was near death in 1998. He said the greatest high that you can get in life is by helping somebody. He said that's as good as it gets. In 1998, he and two others ran into a burning house to save someone's life. And without warning, this Timothy Stackpole, the fire, the, the floor underneath him completely collapsed and he was standing with, with literally flames all around him. And according to the, the book I read, he was trapped up to the neck and his ankles literally within 20 minutes were burned to the bone. And of course he thought he was going to die. He said that he remembered praying, God, just let me die bravely. He said during that 20 to 30 minutes that his feet were being scorched and burned and the flesh scorched and you could smell it, he said... He was thinking he'd never see his children grow up. He was talking about the things going through his mind during that time. And he was thinking, I'll never get to see my children grow up. He said, I started thinking, man, I'll never get to walk my daughter down the aisle. 
and all the things that were going through his mind. But he was rescued. He was taken to the burn center. He was near death for I don't know how many days. And they said that if he lived, he would never walk again. When they first stood him up on his feet, he literally fainted from the pain in his feet. After 66 days, he limped out of that hospital to a hero's welcome. He could have retired with a pension, but he went back to work as a fireman. Three years later, September 11th, 2001, at the World Trade Center, he was among the first to get to ground zero, and he was one of 343 people killed when the towers collapsed. What was he doing? Trying again to pull somebody from the fire. Finally, they found his body over a week later. They draped a flag over him, and as they walked out, the people formed an honor guard and saluted Timothy Stackpole. I read that story, and I thought about a passage in Second Peter where it talks about, shall so an entrance be granted to you. And Peter talks about the kind of entrance we're going to have into heaven. I'll give you one last quote and I'm through. This was from a fireman called Mr. Holiday. Here's what he said. He said he wanted the residents of his city to know one thing about their fire department. They don't have to think about us ever. We're sitting here thinking about them all day, 24 hours a day. I do believe, I personally, am too consumed with me, my family, my church... I believe that I have a responsibility to take care of me and my family and my church. But I'm supposed to be busy pulling men out of the fire. And I believe the clock is ticking and the fire is burning and we better get serious while we still have time. I hope you'll pray about this. Let's stand and give you a chance to come to the altar and talk to the Lord. This is sort of a personal plea for you to get more aggressive as a fireman and trying to rescue people from hell. Dear Father... I struggle with this message. I don't want to pull on the emotional heartstrings of people just to get them to make an emotional decision. God, to me, the responsibility is great. It's serious. It's urgent. And I'm afraid that we've become numb and passive, even past feeling. And somehow, Lord, in this weak attempt of mine tonight, I pray that you'll take the words and magnify them in our minds and in our hearts, that we would see ourselves as firemen, not just sending firemen to the mission field, but being firemen in our neighborhood, where we work, where we live. May our hearts, Lord, be tender to souls. May we get more serious about rescuing the perishing. I pray you'll help East River, Lord. They've got a burden for missions and missionaries. Lord, help that to be translated into activity right here around this church building and all around this area for the glory of God. I pray you'd help us now in Jesus' name.